looking forward to the study of the afternoon with you, and uh, it's kind of crazy how fast the month's gone after all the buildup that we had to doing this series of studies, and I want to say before I get started how much I appreciate each of the guys this month and the effort that was made on this. You, and hopefully the congregation recognizes that amount of work and how blessed we are to have men that are so dedicated to teaching. There's been many months of discussion and collaboration and preparation and study and presentation work, and it's taken many, many months to have this discussion and for the guys to put this stuff together. And with all with the desire to benefit the congregation, help us understand this mysterious book that's a little bit difficult to understand and try to really simplify and help edify the congregation. And I hope each of you recognizes that. Really appreciate the effort. As we were handed out and assigned topics of the month, I was given the topic of how does Revelation apply to us. And I thought at the beginning of the month that I got off relatively easy with my topic, at least in terms of research and digging through some of the more theatrical language in the book and all that kind of stuff. And then as I started actually trying to prepare this without rehashing everybody else's study or stepping on toes or just regurgitating what they said, it became increasingly difficult. And I've tried very hard to not do that or where we are repetitive, do it in a way that it really draws out the application part of that. And I hope that as we close this, that you'll be edified by being here this afternoon. We're going to kind of assume this afternoon a few basic things after we've gone through all of this this month, one being the fact that you understand that this was written to these seven churches in Asia um, at a time period where they were under Roman rule, the Roman Empire, and uh, it was written short, uh, the, the events described in the book were to happen shortly after th- this was written. I think we've demonstrated that this month and been repetitive on that fact. Chapter 1 calls that out, how these events were shortly to come to pass. And so hopefully you have a good understanding of that. And thirdly, the fact that a good, ta- a good um, and a significant portion of the, the content of this book is written about the Roman Empire, specifically about the Roman Empire's persecution of the church. And so hopefully you have a good understanding of that, even if you don't understand all of the horns and seals, you know, all of that. You're going to have to dig into that more. We're all going to have to dig into that more to really get a good grasp around all that stuff. But hopefully you understand those few basic facts this afternoon. And, and so with that said, after we've gone through all of this stuff and all of this text with all this imagery and weird verbiage and language and all of these pictures that we put on the board where people have tried to illustrate these concepts and these, you know, this vision of John's over the years, where does that leave us application-wise? What do we do with the book of Revelation as I advance my slide? What do we do with it? What does it mean for us here in Amarillo some 2,000 years later as we read this? And even if we are convinced that it's a historical book and not so much prophesying end of time things, all that stuff Trevor talked about, even if we are convinced of that, what do we do with it? It's got to be there for a reason, right? Either we believe the Scriptures are inspired and they're inspired to help us or they're not. And I believe that the book of Revelation is a very practical book that's designed to help all sorts of people, Christians throughout the ages, certainly to the churches of Asia whom it was written to, but it's inspired for us as well. And I think it's a very practical book that helps people from the time that John wrote down this vision when it was revealed to him all the way through the end of time when Christ returns. And so every Christian between those two events has a duty to look at this book and understand what God, God desires them to learn about that. And so That's what we want to do this afternoon is finish with some application 
of the book of Revelation and the things that we've talked about, what are the big lessons that we can learn from the book of Revelation? And I think the first one, and probably most direct one, that we've talked about um, significantly this month is the fact that the church will overcome persecution. We've talked about this at length this month, about what the Roman Empire did to the church and what the men and women that lived in faced. And so we would be remiss if we didn't hit on that this afternoon and understand that that's a lesson for us as well. As we look back through the lens of history, we can see the difficult times that those men and women went through and what they had to endure and the things that they had to go through. But as we look for application for us, we have to understand that as well, that the church will overcome persecution, whatever that persecution may look like. We know the Scriptures teach that if you name the name of Christ and you choose to live as a Christian, that you're going to face some form of persecution. And we've talked about that just in the past couple of sermons. Danny talked about it, how it was never promised that we weren't going to face persecution, but there would be a way to deal with it, that we would overcome it. And I think that's a critical lesson for us to learn as we look at the book of Revelation. Remember as he started talking to the seven churches, he said, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's Revelation chapter 2. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And so he talks about this idea as he starts writing to them, be faithful, even unto death, be faithful unto death. And it's already been said, we, the, the amount of persecution we face relative, and, and Danny said it this morning at the Lord's table, that it's, it's almost a guilty feeling that you get as you really dig into this book. And you think, man, the stuff that we go through relative to what they saw, it's a guilty feeling. But the truth is, there may come a time in our lives where we see that. I fear that for my children. There may, I may not see it in my lifetime, but my kids might or their kids might. And I would say the chances are high that at some point in the future, the church could see significant persecution again. But it can overcome it. What did he tell the church at Smyrna? Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. It's a really great lesson for us. We may suffer in this life, but we won't earn an eternal punishment if we're faithful unto death. And how do we overcome that? By being faithful, enduring to the end. And that's the message as he goes on in these letters to these congregations. Hey, you know, I'm not sugarcoating it. Persecution's coming. It's coming your way, and it's going to be tough. But stay faithful. Hold the line was the message to the congregations. Hold the line in this battle. And no matter what comes their way, they shouldn't forget who they are. They shouldn't forget what they're about. Listen to what he told the church at Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Endure to the end. Hold fast to that, he told them. And this was the church that kind of was in pretty good standing. He didn't have much in the way of significant criticism to say to them as he went through these seven churches. Church at Philadelphia was doing a pretty good job, kind of like the church we've been talking about in, in Thessalonica. The church in Philadelphia was doing a pretty good job, but he said, hold fast to it because times are coming. They're going to be hard. Hang on to it. And he wanted them to remain faithful. What about the church at Ephesus? 
I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. How did he describe it? How did he describe their endurance? He said, well, A, it's toiling, so I know it's work. Endurance is not something that's easy. It's something you have to work for, and it's a good lesson for us to think about. We always just think it's something you just, you just be tough about. It's not just, it's not just manning up. It's work. you got to work for it. So I know your work. You toil it, but you're also patient about it. And I think those are two critical factors for how do we endure these tough times that are talked about in the Scriptures. How do we get through them? We work for it, and we're patient with it. Endurance. He talks about it over and over with these congregations. And he said, I know that you're enduring patiently for my name's sake. That's what he praised the church at Ephesus about, even though he had some strong criticism for them as well. It's something that was active. We talked a lot recently about what it means to have an active faith when we did our James study and even looking at the Thessalonians and how they behaved and practiced what they preached and how active it is. Well, the endurance is the same way. You got to be active in that. You got to actively endure. You got to work for it. And as we think about whatever types of persecution come our way in the immediate future or maybe 20 years from now or maybe 50 years from now, we got to be active in that. Further on down in the book, after he kind of gets through his discourse to the seven churches, um, at least that immediate discourse kind of that we read about in chapters 2 and 3, he kind of hits on this idea of endurance again in, in chapter 14. And he says it's a call for endurance. He says, here is the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. What's a characteristic of endurance? How do you know if somebody is enduring? You know, I kind of, you think about endurance, you think about athletes or uh, fitness, things like that, people built, trying to build endurance. How do you know that? Well, you see them working for it. You, you know, it's not just the, the man up idea that we talked about. It's somebody that's working for something. And that's exactly what he says here. The characteristics of someone that's enduring is you see them keeping the commandments of God. No matter what comes their way, no matter what trials they're facing in life, no matter how hard life gets, no matter what they're going through, they keep his commandments. That's the mark of somebody that's enduring. It's the mark of somebody that's keeping on, keeping on. They keep the commandments of God no matter how hard it gets. I've heard people say before, um, they want to really just get everything out of life. You may have heard people say that. I've heard people say that about work. You get people that are the kind of people that, you know, are working 20-hour days, big-time CEOs, business owners, things like that. And it just, it's just always work, 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 you know. Or maybe you think about these people that are kind of get high on adventure and they always got to be doing something crazy or death-defying or, you know, skydiving or wingsuits or jumping from cliff jumping or, you know, all those various things. And you'll hear those types of people talk about like, hey, there's time for rest when I die. But right now while I'm here, I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. I'm going to soak up life and I'm going to get everything I can out of life. And there's some truth, there's some biblical truth to that idea of, of when the rest happens, but it's distorted. You see, the idea of resting when you die is a biblical concept. He said, blessed are those that die in the Lord, then they can rest from their labors. But the distortion is that that's from the faithful endurance. The rest is from the faithful endurance. 
So we should have an attitude of, hey, I can rest when I die, but that's because there's work to do while I'm here. That's because of the church. That's because of godly matters. And I've got to endure in that, and I've got to be faithful in that. And I think it's a prevailing message in the book of Revelation of how strong our endurance should be as we think about our faith. Now, he had lessons for them in overcoming persecution. He had lessons for them in endurance. But as we all mentioned already, David talked about in his study on the seven churches, he also had some warnings to the church. And I think it's pretty fascinating when you think about all of the underlying reasons he wrote this letter or revealed this to the seven churches. Hey, it was a letter of encouragement, but he wanted them to kind of clean up their house. There were some things that needed tidied up. And I think with the benefit of hindsight of this month in our studies and the things that we've talked about this month, and also just the benefit of hindsight with the Scriptures, I think one of the key reasons for that is if they really were going to endure the challenging things that were coming their way, they needed to get their house in order. They needed to clean these things up or else they weren't going to be able to do this. Physically speaking, mentally speaking, spiritually speaking, they weren't going to be ready to handle the persecution coming their way. And so if we do these studies this month and we fail to recognize warnings to the church, then we failed overall. And we need to look at the things that he teaches the churches of Asia about and warns them about and understand that there's a message for us in that too. Back to the church at Ephesus. We talked about them and how he commended them, right? He also rebuked them. And he said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Pretty strong words. He told them they left their first love. And that would be a challenging thing to hear as a congregation. Like, hey, you're doing some things right, but your heart's not in the right place. You left your first love. You left what's most important to you behind. And you need to repent of that and get it taken care of. And I suppose that if they didn't have their heart in the right place, if they weren't still with their first love, that that, that overcoming that persecution would have been really difficult. The church at Sardis, in chapter 3 and verse number 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, pretty challenging words the way he describes it. But it was a message he wanted them to get loud and clear. And what was the root of that message? It was repentance. And I think the lesson for us is, as we look at ourselves, as we look at our congregation, we need to understand that there are some things that we can work on. We need to not be arrogant enough to think that he would write letters to other churches and criticize them of things that were amiss and think we don't have anything that we can work on. And I'm not going to speculate what the list looks like today. Suppose that's part of Jason and Carrie's job. But as a congregation, let's not be arrogant enough to think that we've got it all figured out and that we can't work on stuff. And when we identify things like that, the message is we need to repent of those things. And we need to change while there's time to change. Or we won't be able to do these other things. If the time comes when we're really called on the carpet to endure in our faith, and we're not in the right spot, it's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge for us. Let's heed the warnings of the Scriptures and be repentant in our action. Remember what he told the lukewarm church at Laodicea? 
They weren't either cold or hot. They were kind of just there. They weren't either hot in their faith. They weren't so cold they didn't care at all, but they were just kind of there. And he said, because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich and have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. See, many times as Christians and as also as Americans or humans, what, I don't know, whatever word you want to use to describe that, many times we get this attitude too much, that I need nothing. I've got things taken care of. I've got it worked out. I'm feeling pretty good about it, and I need nothing. And he said, you've got a completely distorted view of yourselves. You're poor and wretched and naked and miserable, pitiable. I don't know. It's like found every word he could call them and called them that. What else is there after all this? And so I think if there's a message to the churches of age about anything, it's their desperate need for Christ. It's that of all the things that you're going to go through and of all the things that you're doing, I want you to understand the desperate need. Noah talked about that this morning, the victories in Jesus. And as we think about the warnings to the church, we should not think more highly of ourselves than we should and realize that we're nothing save for the blood of Christ. While the warnings, you know, if you think about it, they feel a little bit out of place in this letter, to me anyway. You know, the warnings with really pretty harsh rhetoric. It's pretty challenging rhetoric here. He's not gentle about the warnings here and in 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 the way that he says this stuff to these people. Well, I think he explains that. In the same chapter, in verse, uh, verse number 19 of chapter 3, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This reminds me of when I was a kid and it was time to get whipped, which I had my fair share of. And my dad would always say, you know, it was kind of one of a few canned responses. This hurts me worse than it hurts you. I don't really want to do this, but I have to. And I only do this because I love you. And that's what he's saying to the churches here. The reason that I'm reproving you and rebuking you is because I love you. I wouldn't do this to somebody that I didn't love. And he clearly wanted them to get their house in order. And it's clearly the motivation for why he warned them. And what he say, if you heed the warnings, if you conquer, I will grant with him to sit on my throne. That's the reason for the warnings in the book of Revelation, and that's the reason we should listen to them. And the reason we listen, listen to them, the reason why heeding the warnings really matters in the end is because God always wins. And Noah talked about victory in Jesus this morning and what that means. What does victory in Jesus mean? And we don't, certainly don't want to rehash that. But if, if a lesson we come out of the book of Revelation, if we, if we come out of the book of Revelation and we don't understand the fact that God always wins, we've missed a biggie. It's all throughout the book. God wins the battle. The battle's already won at the end of the day. It's just about which side you're going to end up being on. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of, Christ, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses him day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows the battle's over. He knows he's a loser. It's done. And we've read, maybe every guy read this passage, I don't know. Danny said something about it the other night, and I already had it in mind, and I wasn't taking it out. But it's important. It's important to understand this. It's important to understand that his kingdom wins. His kingdom has been established, and there's no overthrowing it. And how do you choose the winning side? The blood of the Lamb. How are you able to conquer the blood of the Lamb? It's all through Christ, and that's how we conquer. And that's how you, it's the only way to win the war. He said they love their lives even unto death, and they stayed not even unto death. They stayed faithful to the grave. For some of them, it was a very real thing. Living in the Roman under the rule of the Roman Empire, it was a very real thing that their faith would be tested to death. And some of them died for that. But they didn't love their lives more than they loved the kingdom. Listen how he describes the outcome of the war. Chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. The Lamb conquered. The song we just sang, Worthy is the Lamb. And of all the forces of evil, and really even non-forces of evil, just think about all of the kingdoms and nations that have existed on earth throughout time. They all have come and gone. But one kingdom has remained, and that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Christ that Christ purchased with his blood. And he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings is the way he's described here. The passage in Philippians, kind of breaking rank here and going out of Revelation one time today. Philippians chapter 2. But the way that he describes this and how powerful it is to be on the winning side. And I think I really felt compelled that we needed to read this, this scripture. Philippians 2 and verse number 8. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a time, and I've, I've always struggled with this passage. At, at one point in my life, I thought this was something that people were going to be forced to do at some point. The people that say, no, I'm an atheist, or I don't believe in your Jesus, or whatever, I thought, he's going to force them to, at some point to say, Jesus is Lord. And as I've got older, I don't necessarily subscribe to that view of it. I think it's more something that people, all people will do voluntarily at some point. And maybe that's the day of judgment. Maybe that's sometime before then. But you can't deny the power of the name, a name that's above all others. God always wins. And the ironic part of this passage to me and why I was so determined to, for us to talk about it is because as we think in our feeble human minds about warfare and what it means to win a war and overthrow a country or overthrow a kingdom or however you want to describe that, we think in physical terms. We think about things like economic might or military might or tools like that that would be used to overthrow a country or a kingdom. And God's way was to do it through humility and obedience. He said he humbled himself 
and became a servant and became obedient. He became obedient to me, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And he's asked no more of us. He's asked no more of us than to humble ourselves and become obedient. And that's the message we should get, we should get out of Revelation is that God always wins. We want to be on his side. And because of that, because I'm convinced that God is, is the winning side, that leaves a choice for us. That means we have to make a choice. You know, our society does not like uh, absolutes. Our society wants to deal in relative terms and feelings more than facts, it seems like these days. They don't like the idea that you should have to pick a side. The truth is, you got to pick a side. Each and every person here today has to pick a side. There's a winning side and there's a losing side. And you have freedom in your life. You have freedom of choice. God has given us freedom in our lives to make our own decisions, to be free thinkers, to act on our own thought processes, and to make those choices. And I'm convinced that life is better because he's made us that way. Life is better because he's made us free thinkers and given us the ability to do that. But you have to make the choice at some point in your life. Some people make that choice by not choosing. A lack of decisiveness on that, they make their choice. But you have to choose a side. In this spiritual warfare, you have to choose a side. What choice will you make? Where's your focus? What are you dedicated to? Which kingdom do you, do you desire to be part of? Do you desire to spend your time and efforts on? Which kingdom do you desire to see win? I want to say just a couple of things about our great country. And I put the flag up there because this flag means something to me. Uh, I'm proud to be an American. I stand for the national anthem and put my hand over my heart and sing along. And I pledge the allegiance when we pledge the allegiance. And I think a lot of our military men and women that fight for this country, that fight for freedom, and that have established what I believe is the greatest country on earth. And I'm very thankful and feel blessed that I was born in this country and that I get to live in this country and the freedoms that we have in this country in every way, but not at the expense of God's kingdom. And a message for us as Americans this morning is we need to have our priorities correct about which kingdom really, really matters. And I think it's okay to be proud of this flag. And I think it's okay to love living in this country. But we have brothers and sisters in other countries. What do we think of them? Are we eager to go to war with them? And I'm not here to be political in any way this afternoon but rather to call attention to focus. Noah talked about focus this morning. Where is our focus? What kingdom really matters to us? We can't be patriots at the expense of Christians. And let's learn that this morning as we think about choosing a kingdom. Listen to what he tells them in Revelation chapter 11. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. You know, if you can imagine this Roman Empire that we've been discussing this month, 
and being a Christian living in that Roman Empire must have been incredibly difficult to envision a time where they didn't rule, where they weren't the ruling power. And it also must have been incredibly faith-building to know to hear these kinds of messages. Hey, this kingdom's one. You gotta make the choice. There's only one everlasting kingdom. And let's not let our American patriotism blind us from the fact that we're Christians and that we've chosen God's kingdom and that the good old USA is a worldly kingdom. And I suppose if God allows this earth to live on into the future for a 1,000 years or 10,000 years, whatever the time period is, as ludicrous as it sounds to us as Americans, the USA may not be here. The USA could fall as a world power, as a physical country on this earth. It's happened time and again through history. And I suppose if you were a Roman living at the time this letter was written and somebody said, hey, the Roman Empire could fall. The Roman Empire is not going to be a world power at some point. They're not going to have this thumb of oppression that they've always had. I suppose that seemed a little bit ludicrous and a little bit laughable. And if we're arrogant enough to think as Americans that the USA is the everlasting kingdom, we need to check ourselves. And Revelation does that for us. It's, t- it's time for us to choose a kingdom. And let's make it God's kingdom. And let's make our focus and our drive and our work be for God's kingdom. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for Christians that live 2,000 years later? What does it mean for the church in Amarillo? What if one of the letters was written to the church in Amarillo? What would he say to us? What are the types of things he would commend us on? You know, maybe it's a good exercise for everyone here to do this exercise in your own mind and in your own, on your own time. Think about the things that we do well, well being defined as according to what God has asked us to do. What would he chastise us for? Would he rebuke us on? Would he have some heart? Would he say, I'm going to take your lampstand? I'm going to put out your candle if you don't get this in order? Remember, he said he reproves, he rebukes those that he loves. And so let's use the scriptures as what they were intended to do to reprove and rebuke us. Remember that? All scriptures given for reprove, rebuke, correction, instruction in righteousness. Let's use them to do those things, make corrections. And remember what he told them? Repent. When we find something that we're not doing well, let's repent. Let's make changes. Let's have a godly sorrow that leads us to make changes in those things. Let's use these lessons to these other churches to evaluate how we can be better and be willing to endure no matter what comes our way, no matter what we face, no matter if there's a time that comes where politically we don't have the freedoms that we enjoy today. We have the ability to look back and see brothers and sisters went through things much worse than we do, and they made it through. Some of them lost their lives. Some of them held on unto death, endured unto death, but they were given the crown. Let's take a stand for the spiritual kingdom that will last forever, and let's pledge our allegiance to that. Let's sing the anthem of God and pledge our allegiance to his kingdom. Let's know that we can conquer by the blood of the Lamb, as we've read multiple times this month, and know that's the only way to conquer. And let's understand that of all the things that these churches in Asia were taught, 
that maybe the most significant of those would be that any success that they had in overcoming and conquering, any success that they had was only through Jesus. And as we close out this series of studies, I think we would be really remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that the gospel exists in Revelation. And the more and more you study the scriptures, I think you as an individual become convinced naturally that the gospel really, the gospel message drips from every page of the Bible. And every book and every word and every letter that is written is the gospel. And Revelation is no different. As we close this afternoon, I want to read Revelation chapter 5. We haven't touched on this a lot this month, Revelation chapter 5. And I really think that this is the gospel story in Revelation. And I want to finish with this and hope that this chapter means as much to you as it does to me. It's a chapter that really pricks your heart. And I hope that this is an edifying way to close this series of studies up. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you felt completely helpless? I can think of a few times in my life where I've truly felt helpless to fix a situation. Uh, In some cases, a situation where I was involved. In some cases, a situation where somebody else was involved. Just a handful, but there was a true helpless feeling. I didn't think there was anything that I could do to fix the situation, and I didn't think there was anything anybody else could do to fix the situation. And it's not a feeling that I would desire for anybody to have. I suppose it's a feeling that everybody has at some point in their life. And if we're being honest about it, it's a feeling we should all have about our spiritual life at some point. But this picture that he paints here is he looks around and nobody's worthy to open the scrolls. And I want to tell you something today, and that's that you have a sin problem. And I have a sin problem. And as I look around this room, I see many men and women that I know would do anything for me if I asked. But I know as I look around this room that not a single one of you can do anything about my sin problem. And we could go out these doors and call everybody in the city of Amarillo to come to this gathering and see 200,000 people here. And I could tell 200,000 people that I have a sin problem. And I could look at 200,000 people and there's not a single one of them that could do anything about my sin problem. And we could extend that to the state of Texas and to the United States of America. And we could extend that to every country on earth. And we could gather every human being that's alive on this planet here And I could tell them that I have a sin problem and not a single one of those people can do a thing about it. And that's the helplessness that's depicted as John writes this letter, as he looked around and nobody could do anything about it. If that doesn't give you a pit in your stomach, I don't know what can. It's completely helpless and hopeless. In verse number five, he says, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's a movie called Dumb and Dumber, and I don't 
necessarily recommend the movie as you'll spend two hours of your life and you'll actually lower your IQ probably by watching this movie. But it's got a bunch of funny historical one-liners in it. But there's a part in that where Jim Carrey's character, uh, he falls in love with Lauren Hawley's character. And, and it's a one-way street, right? He, uh, she doesn't even know who he is the whole movie, and yet he thinks that they're destined to be there. So there comes this part where he finally gets back in contact with her at the end of the movie, and he says, hey, you know, what do you think the chances are of, of someone like you and someone like me ending up together? Madly in love with her, right? And she's, you know, you can tell she's not wanting to hurt his feelings. She's kind of beating around the bush. He goes, just give it to me straight. And she says, they're not good. And he says, not good like one in a hundred. And she's like, not good like one in a million. You know, just completely to Dash's hopes and his dreams. And the camera pauses on him for a couple of seconds, and he gets this little smile in the corner of his mouth. And he just immediately gets fired up and says, yes, you're telling me there's a chance. And I think of that as I think about the people that he looked across here who could do something about this problem. And as you look throughout history, billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of people, the odds are one in many, many billions, maybe approaching a trillion at this point. I, don't, I didn't do the math on that. We're probably not there yet. One in a billion, odds that are far greater than any odds we can come up with playing the lottery or getting struck by lightning or any of the things that we put odds on, the odds that somebody could do something about this problem are greater. But the fact that it's one in something means I'm telling you there's a chance and we should have a smile on our face. And that's what he said here because one of the elders said, hang on, because the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Verse number six, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under in the sea and all that is in, in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down in worship. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Doesn't he deserve our praise? Isn't he worthy of our praise? That's the message of the book of Revelation is that he conquered. And we can face anything that life has to throw at us through him. And I hope as we've studied this book this month that your faith is being built up and benefited. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you understand what this means, that there's a battle, that there's a war that's been fought, and you've got to pick a side. And the only way to conquer that is through the blood of the Lamb. And we want to offer an invitation at this time. If you have a need to choose a side, if you understand what it means to obey the gospel and your need to do that, we want to offer an invitation at this time. Or if you have any other need that the church can help you with, we offer the blood of the Lamb. And we're happy to pray with you and pray for you if you'll come as we stand and sing.